Jonah chapter 3. This morning, I want us to talk about the gospel and repentance. You know, as we've been saying these wonderful songs, they remind us of how incredible of a Savior we have. Think about what Jesus has done for you. Think about what Jesus uh, has changed in your life, what you were before Christ and what you are today. And think about what he's making you to be. I love those verses that I read earlier as we were getting ready to take the offering. That old has passed. Behold, all things new has come. That's the story of our life. And so we have a wonderful Savior. His name is Jesus. That is our Savior. And the fact that the very, the, the very fact that the Scripture refers to him as a Savior, what does that mean for us? It means there's something we need saving from. It means there's danger out there from which we need to be saved. There's a danger threatening us, and the Bible reveals that danger as a spiritual danger. It talks about it being a spiritual death that manifests itself in a physical death. You see, the Bible tells us that humanity has made war on God and that he will justly deal with the wickedness of each and every person. Thankfully, God is patient. Thankfully, God is merciful. He's gracious toward us. You see, the Bible makes it very clear that God would rather see sinners turn from their wickedness and experience forgiveness than face the fiery hell, fiery flames of hell. We'd rather them experience forgiveness than judgment. And the Apostle Peter explains this patience of the Lord. He he explains this mercy that God shows toward us in his letter, 2 Peter. You see, when he's writing that letter, he's writing to Christians who wondered about the justice of God. They wondered about if God was going to rectify all of the things, the bad things that they were going through, all the persecution that they were experiencing. Peter reminds them of the coming judgment of God. And yet in that vein of judgment, he talks about God's mercy. He talks about his heart for sinners. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. There's no doubt in Peter's mind, there's no doubt in Jonah's mind that the judgment of God is a real thing. There's no doubt that the judgment of God is coming. You see, this is what the message uh, that was given to Jonah, this is what he was told and, and sent with to deliver to the people of Nineveh. It would have been a message that the prophet would have happily delivered. We've talked about Jonah over the last several weeks. We hopefully know a little bit about his psyche and the way he approached things. He would have been happy to deliver a message of judgment to the people of Nineveh. Because he possessed a keen understanding of the evil that those Ninevites were engaged in. He was acutely aware of all of the atrocities, all of the the damage that they had done inflicted upon his people. He would have easily delivered a message saying, God's judgment is coming upon you. God's going to destroy you. God's going to wipe the face of the earth of you. Yet, when God called him to go and to preach against their sin, what did Jonah do? He decided the best thing for him was to 
go the other way. It was to reject the order. It was to reject the, the command to go and to preach because he understood if they heard what he was saying, there's a possibility that they would repent and be forgiven. And so Jonah wanted, Jonah wanted them to experience wrath rather than grace. So he went to Joppa. He chartered a ship. He went down in that ship. The Bible tells us that they set sail. And as immediately as they set sail, God began to hurl a storm at them. And the storm was raging. And it became so intense that the ship was breaking apart. And those very veteran sailors were fearing for their life. They thought the ship was going to go down. They're crying out to God. They're throwing things overboard. Anything they can do to save themselves, they're doing. They're crying out to their gods. They're telling others to cry out to their gods. And Jonah is asleep under the deck through all of it. He's oblivious. He's numb to what's God, what God is doing in his life. The captain comes down and finds him. He commands him to call on his God because perhaps his God is the one who would answer. Jonah came up on the deck. Nothing surprised him. He knew that this was because of his rebellion. He said so. He says, here's the solution. If you will throw me overboard, this storm will cease. He would rather die than do what God commanded. He would rather die than see his enemies be forgiven and transformed. And so the sailors thought that his solution was a little harsh. They tried their own solution. They, they worked out their own action plan, but it came to no avail and finally took him and threw Jonah overboard. And immediately the Bible says the storm ceased. Jonah's there treading water in the Mediterranean and you can only tread water for so long. So he begins to sink down to the depths. Eventually, as he's sinking, his desire for death became a despair for life. And in his despair, he began to call out to the Lord. In his affliction, he begins to turn from his sin, from his rebellion. And in faith, he's crying out to God for help. God appoints a fish. The fish comes and swallows him and three days later spits him up on the ground. And then we see the, the uh, aftermath of that as we come into chapter 3 is Jonah is again commanded to go to Nineveh and to preach. What we've seen so far in Jonah's repentance is that the Lord specializes in doing the impossible. He specializes in, in doing the improbable. It makes no sense that God would, number one, forgive the Ninevites, and number two, forgive and use a prophet who had went through such rebellious acts to get out of the call of God. And yet God is in the business of doing both. He wants sinners to be saved. He wants Christians who are walking into guilty distance to come home and to be restored. His mercy can and it will reach down to the very depths of despair. It will raise up those who will turn from their sin. You see, it may feel like we're a million miles away from the Lord, but you're only one prayer away. It's only one turn of the head. It's only one bow of the knee. It's only one humble heart that gets God's attention. The Lord desires to step in. He desires to rescue. He desires to raise us up to life again. And Jonah got to experience just that. He was raised up. He was put back into service. And today as we carry on in this passage, we're going to see through Jonah's message of judgment on the people of Nineveh that God desires for sinners to be forgiven and transformed, but they first must believe the gospel and turn from their sin. The gospel and Repentance. Look there with me. 
verse 6 through 10 of chapter 3. And I didn't bring my glasses this morning, so if I do this, you know why. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through, and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And then verse 10, beautiful verse. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. That's a good word. What's happening here in the text? Well, we see that the word that reached the king was the warning of judgment. That's what Jonah was preaching. He's going through the city of Nineveh. He's going, it's a three-day journey through the, the city. Now it's day one, and on day one, Jonah is preaching. God's going to bring judgment. In Hebrew, it's a five-word message that's recorded for us. And that word reached to the ears of the king. That the Ninevites were in spiritual danger, and Jonah was fully aware of what it was like to experience the judgment that he's speaking of. Think about what's happening here. He's preaching judgment to a sinful people, and he was a sinful prophet just days before this. He was under the judgment of God. He was under the hand of God. And yet, he was given a second chance. He obeyed the second call to go to the city because he had learned that obedience is always the best option. And yet I think there's another aspect to this. I think that what we see here is one of the reasons Jonah was so quick to do this was not just because he had learned that disobedience doesn't pay, though that's a good lesson to learn. I think he had also, at least for the moment till we get to chapter 4, had learned and that, the, the, that the people could and perhaps should experience the mercy of God. His heart warmed to the Ninevites just a little. He wanted to see them repent. He wanted to see them uh, soften their hearts and move to the, toward the Lord. And so the preaching of judgment came from a place of love rather than hate. When we think about the gospel, when we think about the preaching of the gospel, is this not where it ought to come from? That it comes from a position or a place of love rather than hate? I like what Sinclair Ferguson has said. He says, to warn men of the judgment to come is the only course that biblically instructed love can take. When we go and we preach the gospel, it's not because we hate that person. It's not because we want judgment to come to that person. It's because in Christ, through Christ, we love them with the love of Jesus, and we want them to experience what we've experienced. I mean, it just makes sense. If you've ever been around a, a dangerous place, maybe you're on the edge of a cliff. Maybe uh, I remember a few years ago, we're at the Grand Canyon. You stand there on the edge and you want to get as close as you can because you want to experience all that's down there and the, and the grandeur. But at the same time, you get a little butterflies in your stomach because you're thinking that is a long ways down there. And if you've got kids with you, you're constantly reaching and grabbing and, and putting them on a rope. You don't want them to go over. Why? Because you love them. 
You're going to do everything you can to keep them from going off the cliff. When we come to people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we understand that they're coming to the precipice. They're coming to the edge of the cliff. And if they go down, it's an eternal down. It's a death that you cannot recover from. We love them enough to tell them what they need to hear. We love them enough to tell them the good news. So when it comes to preaching the gospel in our own lives, we must feel this same sort of obligation that Jonah at this point felt. Ferguson goes on to make a strong point. He says, it is unlikely others will be convinced of their danger if we are not convinced of it. You see, if we don't understand the danger that people are in spiritually in their sin, then how in the world can we ever convince them and they understand the danger theory? No, we need to be convinced of it, that they will go to a devil's hell, that they will be eternally separated from God. We need to understand and be convinced that they are now in their sin, condemned and separated from the God who created them. Thus we go. How convinced are we? You know, in small groups, last Sunday, we began a six weeks emphasis where we're teaching and training how to share the gospel with others. But here's what I know. We will never open our mouth. We will never share the gospel with anyone if we're not convinced that they are in a very dangerous spiritual position. That's what motivates us. It's love for Jesus and his love flowing through us to them, knowing their predicament. That's what motivates us to share. We can't shame you into sharing. We can't tell you you're a terrible Christian and, and boy, you can do better than that. That may motivate you for a moment, but it won't last. What lasts is that you understand the danger that they're in and it motivates you in love to go and to share and to bear your life with them, to mesh up against them, to make a difference. So do we believe that the wages of sin is death? Do we believe that sinners will rightly experience the devil's hell for all of eternity? Are we convinced this judgment is just and the future of all people who reject God's gracious gift of salvation through Jesus Christ? Do we believe that? Well, of course we believe that. We're Southern Baptists. We believe the gospel. You only believe what you practice. You catch what I just said? You only believe what you practice. You may believe it with your lips. You may believe it in your head. But if you're not, your heart is not behind it moving you to action, you do not believe that. Do you believe that your lost family members who die without Christ go to an eternal hell? Do you believe that the people that live on your street, the people that live in your neighborhood, the people who are in our state, in our country, who never receive the gospel into their own lives and turn to Jesus, do you believe they are eternally damned? Do you believe that the people across the world, the nations around the globe who need to hear the gospel, that if they don't hear that, they will go to a devil's hell? Do we believe these things? If so, it will motivate us in all facets of our life to put our money where our mouth is, to put our feet on the plane to go overseas. They will lead us to go across the street. They will lead us to sit down with people in, in our circles of influence and do everything we can to put the gospel in their hands and let them make the decision. Jonah is at that place in his life. For a moment, we're going to get to chapter four next week, but he's there today. So this transformation 
that took place in Jonah's life is absolutely amazing. The transformation that takes place in the Ninevites is doubly amazing. They turn to the Lord. Eric Redmond in his commentary offers this incredible perspective. He says this about the king. He says, the great king of this great city who sits on a great throne and who is wearing robes of royalty one minute looks like an insignificant nobody who is mourning and setting in ashes another minute. The Lord's message has made this great statesman who is part of an empire that is ruling the world understand that even he must humble himself before God. The gospel has has interjected this man's life. And he turns from his evil ways. He cries out to God. He also commands every person in the kingdom, but not just every person. He says, I want your livestock to do the same thing. You fast, you put on sackcloth, you humble yourselves before the Lord. Let's turn from all of our evil and let's beseech the Lord. Let's cry out to him and perhaps he will be merciful to us. It's an amazing transformation that takes place among these pagan people as they forsake their gods and they begin to cry out to the one true God. And then verse 13, verse 10, I should say. That beautiful gospel verse says that the Lord relented of his judgment and he forgives their sin. Last week, we began looking at this miracle through the lens of the gospel. We examined it from the, from the perspective of faith and the faith in the work of the gospel, that we have to believe what Jesus has done for us. We have to believe what he has said about us. We have to faith in to Jesus. Now, this morning, I want us to talk about repentance. We see in this passage how the king turned. We see how the people turned. Both are needed in salvation, faith and repentance. We must turn to God in faith turn from our sin and believe in what Jesus has done to pay the price. And so let's talk about repentance. Three things I want us to, to see here. Repentance involves, first of all, an awareness of sin. Repentance involves an awareness of sin. Look at verse six. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. Verse eight. He says, let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. What happened in the king's life was very similar, if not identical, to what had happened in the lives of those common people in the city of Nineveh. See, the day that Jonah arrived in the city, the king and the people were living life like they had always done. They got up and they did the same thing they had always done. If it's a Tuesday, they did what Tuesday did. What you do on Tuesday, you know what I'm saying by that? They were living normal lives, going through normal routines. They were wicked and living in rebellion against God, and yet they probably had never even given it a thought. Little did they know that their day would end a lot different than it began. They would hear words from a foreigner that made absolutely no sense, and yet their hearts are drawn to the message. And that night, they would go to bed on a stained pillow, a prayer-saturated pillow, because God had got a hold of their hearts and of their minds. The king, in all of his glory, realized that he was undone. He saw his sin for what it was. He saw it as an abomination before Almighty God. You see, the Holy Spirit of God had illuminated his spirit, had illuminated his heart, had shown him that he is a sinner and that he is under the judgment of God, and he wanted and needed and desired to experience forgiveness. Before this day, the king had 
more than likely never even considered his sin. He had never thought about the rebellion he was in against the God of heaven. The thought of judgment and eternal damnation was not on his radar. It's the same with you before you came to know Jesus. More than likely, you were living your life, going through your routines with no thought whatsoever to God or the position you are in against God. Never thinking you're condemned, never thinking you're under judgment, never thinking you're separated from God. You were just living life and enjoying it. And then all of a sudden you heard a message and it changed you. All of a sudden you heard a message and you begin to think, I, there's something wrong with me. I'm messed up. I, I'm under the judgment of God. It rocked your world. You had to do something with that message. Either continue to reject God or embrace the message and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. The king was enjoying the benefits of his sin and in that moment, everything changed. His eyes were open. He was appalled. He was devastated over his sin. He fully knew the wrath of God that he deserved. It's like the scales had been pulled back and he could see clearly for the first time that he was, in, he was at war with the Lord. This is what an awareness of sin does to us. It's what the gospel does to us. It opens the eyes. It pushes back the veil. You see, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descended on Jerusalem and Peter stood up and preached the gospel, the people present there in that moment became aware of their own sinfulness. I want you to hear how they responded to the message of the gospel. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In that moment when they heard Peter, Peter preach the gospel, their hearts were arrested. Their eyes began to see themselves for who they were. They became aware of their sin that separated them from God. See, in that moment of revelation, they asked Peter and the other disciples what they needed to do. They had no idea. They just knew that the message that they heard condemned them. They saw themselves as sinners. They saw themselves as wicked before God under the just judgment of a holy God. And they said, what can we do about this? And Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus Christ. The gospel demands that we be aware of our sin. You see, you cannot be saved if you don't know that you are first lost. One of the things that we have to do when we're sharing the gospel with someone is help them understand, yeah, you need to be saved, but until they understand they're lost, they don't know they need to be saved. It's kind of like you ladies, when you go on a trip with your husband, and he says, I know exactly where I'm going, and you're like, no, it's not that direction. We need to go this way, and he says, no, I know where I'm going. you got to help him understand he's off the trail, and he needs to get back on the trail. I forget I'd get more of a laugh out of this. Some of you ladies are like, I ain't touching that. We have to tell people the truth, that we're all sinners, we all fall short of God's glory, God's standard, his holiness. We don't measure up to that. The wages of sin is death. We're eternally separated. We have to help them understand the fullness of their condition before the Lord. Because you cannot repent of sin if you cannot see it. 
First of all, repentance involves an awareness of sin. Secondly, it involves contrition over the sin. Go back with me to Jonah chapter 3, verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Contrition over sin. What is contrition? That's a word we don't throw around a lot in a common conversations. Contrition is the state of feeling remorseful. It's the idea of being penitent. It's, it's the realization that I have done something wrong, but not just wrong, terribly wrong, and I feel it in my bones. It's the strong emotional response of regret. It's the emotional response of shame and despair over one's sin. Catch a picture of it in a parable that Jesus shared in Luke chapter 18. Where a Pharisee comes in to pray and a tax collector comes in to pray and Jesus uses it to, to, to really demonstrate how we should approach the Lord and how we should see our own self-righteousness. But here I want you to see in it contrition of one's sin. Luke 18 verse 10. Jesus says two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But listen how the tax collector prayed. Jesus says, standing far off, the tax collector would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Which one of these men experienced contrition of heart? I can tell you it wasn't the Pharisee. The Pharisee says, Lord, you're blessed to know me. Lord, I'm just an, I'm an asset to your team. You are lucky to have me. That's what the, the Pharisee's praying here. The, the, the tax collector comes in and he says, Lord God, I don't even deserve to be in your presence. I don't even deserve to lift my eyes and look on your goodness and your glory. Forgive me a sinner. See, the tax collector felt the weight of his sin before holy God. He was absolutely broken over his sinful life. And the same took place in those present at Pentecost. Going back to Acts chapter 2, we see that they were cut to the heart. Their hearts were rendered. Those present there in Jerusalem were overwhelmed by their sinfulness. And they came to Peter and says, what do we need to do about this? Contrition over their sinfulness. Despair over their sinfulness. Remorse over their sinfulness. You cannot repent of sin if you don't feel the sting of separation that has been caused because of sin between you and God. But there's a third thing repentance involves, and that is an agreement about sin. An agreement about sin. Jonah chapter 3, verse 8. The king again says this, Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. What we're reading here is that the king and the people both agreed with God about their sin. They both called it what it was. They both owned up to it. Nowhere in this passage, nowhere in this chapter do we see king or people dismissing it, thinking it's not really that bad. It's not as egregious as one may say. No, they owned it. They called it what it was. They call it evil. They didn't just say, well, it's the way I was born. It's my upbringing. 
It's the social class that I come from. It's because it's the way I grew up from that side of the street. No, no dismissing it. No excuses. Let us turn from our evil. And perhaps God will hear and forgive. Repentance involves an agreement about sin. Not excuses, not blame, agreement with God about sin. So for us, and for those that we would share the gospel with, we have to hear the gospel and the message it declares that God is just and holy and good, that he's created us for himself, that he has a design and purpose for our life, but there's a problem in all that. It's sin that separates us. It's sin that leads us astray. It's sin that brings brokenness into our lives. And we feel that, we understand that, we see that, we try to get out of it by fixing ourselves, by running to anything and everything but God. And yet we realize that though we are condemned and justly so, there is a God who loves us and wants to be in relationship with us, and he's given us good news. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the message that says God himself has paid the penalty for your sin. In his son, he sent him to live a perfect life, to fulfill the commandments of God, to offer himself as a penal substitutionary sacrifice on behalf of you and me. And if I will faith into that, if I will believe Jesus and what he did, that he is Lord and Savior, that his sacrifice did satisfy the wrath of God, if I will believe that, that he was crucified, buried, and raised from the dead to conquer sin, hell, and the grave, then I can be forgiven. And I will be forgiven. And I can now be on the path to pursue and recover all that the Lord God desires for my life. But to begin that, I have to agree with God about sin. I got to own it. I'm a sinner. I'm an idolater. I'm an adulterer. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a thief. I'm running for God. I live for money and pleasure. I'm religious, but not godly. I'm consumed with evil. I place my hope in myself. I mean, we could go on and on and on about the descriptions of our life. But we must own up to them and agree with God about them. You see, repentance by definition is the turning from our sin and turning to God. It's not, I'm going to stop doing this. It's an understanding that, yes, I need to stop doing this, but I need to turn to him, and he's the one that's going to give me power to continue to stop doing this. Religion says, don't do that, but do this. But it gives you no power to do this over that. (laughs) I'm trying. That's what we want to do all the time. But repentance says, man, I am absolutely powerless to the, to, the, to the bond of sin in my life, the binding of sin in my life, but I'm going to reach back and I'm going to turn to Jesus and he's going to revolutionize my old things are going to be gone. New things are going to be new in my life. His power is going to be there and I'm going to walk in the power of his spirit all my life. But it starts with agreeing with God about my sin. And this is what the king and the people do here in Jonah chapter three. How did they know that? you got to believe that Jonah some way or somehow expressed to them that something about his life and his experience gave them hope. 
Surely he told them about how he had been running from God and he agreed with God about his sin and now he's been restored and forgiven and, and now he's there being used of God. Surely they saw the mercy and the grace of God in Jonah and through his ministry and so they believed in God's grace. They believed in his long suffering and patience and by faith turned to him. Surely they saw in Jonah that when it seems that sinners are beyond the grace of God, they understood no one's beyond the grace of God. You may seem and it may feel like you're a million miles away from the Lord, but as I said earlier, and I've said for the last two or three Sundays, you're one prayer away. You're one turn back to him. You're one realization that I am sinning against God and it's an affront against God and it's under the judgment of God and I don't want that. And forgiveness is there. It's available for me if I will turn to it. You cannot send yourself beyond the reach of Christ. The God of heaven, the God who transformed the people of Nineveh stands ready to forgive and restore sinful people. He specializes in the impossible and the improbable. God's mercy can and will reach down to the very depths of despair to raise up those who will turn in faith and repentance to him. Acts 2.38. And Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, Peter makes it very clear that the God of the Bible will redeem each and every person's life who will believe what he says about their sin and believe on him for the forgiveness of that sin and in faith turn to him and away from their sin. That is the gospel message. It's an incredible message. It's a message that says no matter who you are or what you've done, you can be forgiven and transformed. You know, sometimes we don't like that. Sometimes when we hear about people on death row hearing the gospel and being saved, we think that is a terrible, terrible thing. That's a terrible thing for us to think that. Who are we? But by the grace of God, it could be us on that death row. It could be us doing those atrocities in life. We don't know how wicked our hearts is. It is unbelievably wicked, and who can know it? The message of the gospel is that every sinner can be forgiven and saved message of the gospel is even greater than that. God wants every person to be saved. I'm a closet Calvinist, but I don't deny those things. I believe God desires for all men to be saved. I believe his salvation is available for all those who would desire it. Today, if you've never surrendered your life, to Jesus, if you've never trusted him as Lord and Savior, here's a big question for you. Why? What's keeping you from that? What's keeping you from saying yes to him and no to sin? What's keeping you from turning from the wickedness in your life that is doing nothing but destroy you? What is keeping you from that? I mean, we like to gamble, right? That's the gamble that we don't want to play. That's the that's the night at the crab table that you don't want to get out there and do. I'm talking about st stuff I don't know about right now, gambling. I want you to know that. I don't know anything about gambling. But we like to take chances. This morning, I'm, we're going about to move into a time of response. It's an opportunity for you to respond to the gospel. And I'm not trying to play tricks with you today to scare you into being quote unquote saved, but I need you to know the truth. You're not promised tomorrow. I did a funeral for a man that's just a few years older than me, Friday. 
who from everything I've been told was healthy one day and dead the next. You're not promised tomorrow. What would keep you from trusting Jesus? Maybe you're with us online. What would keep you from putting your faith and trust in Jesus, turning from your sin, understanding what these people in Jonah 3 understood about their position and place before God, that they were undone and in despair before him, under judgment, and yet they turned in faith and were forgiven. God will change your life. Perhaps you're a Christian who's walking at a guilty distance. In a lot of ways, your life resembles the life of Jonah when he was on the run. God says, I want you to do this. And you're like, no, I've really got my own plan for my life. And I kind of wish you'd sit on the sideline for a while. And if I need you, I'll call you. That's how a lot of Christians live their life. God, I'll, I'll call you when I can't handle it. I'll call you when the issue's too big for me. I'll call you when I, when I need to tag team someone into the equation, but you just sit on the sideline. I'll be the Lord who sits on the throne for a while, and you just set this one out. How many Christians does that sound like? This morning, you need to just come home. You need to don't allow yourself to get on the boat and the storms of life begin to destroy you. Just come home now. Turn to him. Own that sin and turn to the Lord. What's keeping you from that? There's a third aspect I want us to think about as we consider how we should re respond to Jonah 3. God sends his children on mission with the message of salvation. Isn't that what Jonah's doing here? Get up and go and preach. And there we see they're going to respond as a Christian, are you sharing the message of the gospel with others? This week, did you have opportunities to tell people about your faith in Jesus? Did you have opportunities to talk about your walk with the Lord? Did you share your testimony? Did you use the three circles that we're learning in small group? Did you maximize and strategically use those moments God's placed around you? Or did you just kind of let them pass by? You say, Pastor, I didn't have any opportunities to share the gospel. I don't believe it for a bit. And you don't believe it either. You know those opportunities are there. You just didn't take advantage of them. I'm not, I don't want to heap uh, uh, judgment on you. I just want you to feel the weight of that. right? You need to feel the weight of that because you're not living the way the Lord would have you. He sends you on mission. you got opportunities in your family, your friends, your neighborhood, the places where you work, in your school, you go to school at. There's opportunities, and we need to be gospel witnesses. We need to be Jonah's going to preach to people who are far from God and giving them opportunities to respond in faith and repentance. What is the Lord saying to your heart this morning? Do you need a relationship with him? Are you dead in trespasses and sins? Are you on your way to a devil's hell? Jesus would say, come. Repent and turn to Jesus. If you're a Christian who's walking into guilty distance, why not begin to move closer to him? He's right there next to you, by the way. We try to pull away all the time, but he keeps following you. He keeps slowing down his pace. He's not going to let you get too far behind. Why don't you come home this morning? Perhaps the Lord's put people on your heart. You're thinking, I need to be share the gospel with that lady across the road. I see that man all the time at the restaurant or the gas station or wherever you visit. I need to just ask him where he's at. I need to invite him to Red Lane. Heard from one of our ladies this morning, said that on the way to church, Young family was out walking in the neighborhood. I guess she rolled up, rolled the window down, and invited them to Red Lane. I don't know if they're here or not, but what an awesome testimony. That's such a simple, simple thing to do.